BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 14th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. So did you notice that the month of November is upon us? Are you growing out an epic handlebar mustache? Harry's.com is the official razor partner of Movember, and they will be there for you for the entire Harry month. So if it's just not working out, whether or not you grow your mo, with Harry's you can get an amazing shave and do good by supporting Movember's quest to fund research on important men's health issues. So support Inquiring Minds and get five bucks off your first purchase by going to harrys.com and using the coupon code Inquiring Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code Inquiring Minds. And with the holidays almost here, you probably don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed, everyone will be mailing these massive holiday gifts, so use stamps.com instead. With stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. Use promo code MINDS for this special offer, a no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Today's episode is also sponsored by MailRoot, the leading cloud service for email protection since 1997. MailRoot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. With MailRoot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. To remove spam from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net slash Minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. That's MailRoot.net slash M-I-N-D-S. This week, I'm delighted to introduce another guest host, Kishore Hari. He's the director of the highly successful Bay Area Science Festival based out of UC San Francisco. He's been involved in producing live science events for the better part of a decade, and anyone who has any interest in science and lives in the Bay Area or has been to the Bay Area and a science event has probably had a beer with him at some point. Kishore, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We're so excited to have you, and we've been waiting for this for a while, so I'm glad we finally got it to work. 
I, I'm glad too. Uh, the only thing is, we don't have a beer here. I guess this doesn't qualify as a live science event. No, and uh, and and you know, we are very serious here at Inquiring Minds, so you know, we have to be sober. That's exactly what you're going to get today: a sober account of science news. Perfect. So most of us think of babies as selfish, impulsive, out of control, mini sociopaths. Kishore, you have a baby. You probably agree. He's now three. So he's beyond a baby. But I remember my wife uh, sending me an onion headline that all children are innately sociopaths. That I was like, oh, I think the onion might actually be onto something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we think we tend to think of their morality as shaped by experience, you know, by society, by their parents, by early childhood events, shaping their notions of good and bad. But Paul Bloom and his collaborators at Yale have some pretty compelling evidence that at least some parts of our moral compass are innate. That is, that babies are born with the capacity to tell good from bad, just as they are born with the capacity to develop motor or language skills. And by understanding how our morality develops throughout childhood, we can gain some insight into how our own gut feelings and biases shape our moral lives as adults. Paul Bloom is a cognitive scientist and the author of six books, including How Pleasure Works, and most recently, Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil. So when I asked him whether all babies are born equal when it comes to a moral sense, here's what he had to say. I think all babies are created equal in that all normal babies, all babies without brain damage, possess some basic foundational understanding of morality and some foundational moral impulses. They're equal in the same way that all babies come in with a visual system and the ability to move around and and the propensity to learn language. On the other hand, babies are not equal in the sense that um, a lot of traits connected to morality vary across humans. And so some babies are born being more empathetic than others or more aggressive or more contemplative. And some of these differences are heritable. Uh, so to some extent, babies come in a world different from one another. And anybody who's had more than one kid wouldn't be surprised by this. So Kishore, what do you think of that? I'm a little surprised because it flies into this face, I guess, this psychology 101 notion that I had that babies are just lumps and that there is essentially nothing about them that is new or uh, exciting out uh, in terms of their development. And everything comes from sort of a learned space. So he's sort of immediately flies into the face of of some major psychology figures with this notion that there is something innate um that is happening in them and then i'm surprised that uh the the first word that he uses to describe this is they have a moral compass i don't think he used the word compass but there's this morality innate in babies and morality in the sense that we assume there's there's sort of cultural ties to morality, that there's religious influence on morality. These are things that we obviously can't associate with babies. So, uh, And then the last thing I'm surprised about, that he really puts forth this notion that all babies are created equal. Uh, And outside of sort of the uh, notion of, you know, babies that have, you know, severe medical conditions, I was actually incredibly surprised uh, about that statement, given the genetic complexities um, that are that are uh, that arise within our in our species that I would imagine that there would be some pretty significant differences 
um, uh, in in some of the the babies that are being born. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, he's saying, "Look, babies are not a blank slate." The way Sigmund Freud and you know, way philosophers and and psychologists have said for ages. But on the other hand, they are created equal. So you know, where does this come from? So I think I think it's uh, you know, hopefully it'll make for an interesting interview for our listeners. I certainly had a blast interviewing him, and I learned a lot. So um, before we get to that interview, though, I do want to talk about some other science in the news. And uh, with full disclosure, I have to say that the paper that I wanted to talk about is one that comes from the journal that I edit called Neurocase, uh, but it's getting some press outside of my own plugging. And uh, this is a paper that describes the abolition of a lifelong specific phobia, an arachnophobia to be specific, so the fear of spiders, in a patient who had a left medial temporal lobectomy, which means that because he had some seizures and seizure activity, the neurosurgeons removed a part of his brain called the amygdala, which we know is involved in fear. And it turns out that that abolished his arachnophobia. So full disclosure, I don't like spiders. (laughs) I don't like spiders at all. And I think there's an important distinction here. I think there's a sense of people that are just afraid of spiders this person had a real phobia of spiders. Like his behavioral uh, adjustments around spiders were were pretty severe. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they do have the caveat in the paper that this is a post hoc thing, right? They didn't know going into the surgery that he was an arachnophobic or an arachnophobe. Um, and so they can only go on the basis of what he recalled. But he does say things like he wouldn't just go and kill a spider, he would like throw a tennis ball at it. So he wouldn't have to touch it himself and that it would really bother him. And, and then post surgery, he would find them fascinating, go up to them and let them crawl in his hands and sort of interact with them, which I think most of us, I mean, I certainly wouldn't go that far. I mean, you know, do you have a phobia of spiders, Kishore, or is it just like a rational fear? I don't have a phobia of spiders. I just think they're crawling on me during spider (laughs) reproductive season. Like, I get freaked out by it. But uh, I I have to say, like, it was, um, this is sort of a fascinating news story, and the paper didn't quite match it. It was... uh, Let's talk about the, the actual science first. They removed just the left amygdala. And one of us on the show is a is a proper neuroscientist. So uh, I, I have to ask, I mean, this is, you know, essentially our, our sort of lizard brain um, in action. And we know there's been a lot of studies referencing fear and phobias in this part. But this was the first paper, and they mentioned this in the paper, that ever showed a specific phobia removal with the removal of this this left part of the amygdala. And what was your like initial reaction when you saw that? Yeah, so you know, I guess it wasn't super surprising to me because I've worked with temporal lobectomy patients before and their losses tend to be fairly specific uh, to one category of things or to one type of memory, etc. If it's a it's unilateral, that is only one side of the brain uh, has the surgical resection. So, uh, you know, that wasn't so surprising to me. What's surprising to me was just sort of like, you know, that this was a, a specific phobia of a spider that got abolished. and But, you know, he still has an intact right amygdala. Uh, so his ability to, you know, fear or to even 
regulate his emotions is still intact. And that's one thing that people forget is that, you know, we talk about the amygdala as being really involved in fear processing and the modulation of memory that's, you know, related to fearful things. But really, the amygdala is, is much more complicated than that in terms of the emotions that it processes. It's just that fear is the easiest emotion to study in rodents in particular, right, which is where a lot of this work started out. Um, it's really easy to see whether or not a rat is afraid. It's much harder to tell whether a rat is ashamed. <laughs> Some of those studies are conducted over a long period of time. Do we expect um, for this patient that things are going to change with him over time, given this, uh, this I can't even say lobectectomy or whatever. <laughs> Lobectomy, <laughs> yeah. Lobectomy, here we go. I'm learning. Uh, yeah, do we expect things to change over time for him? So he did have some other symptoms that resolved with time. So for example, he also immediately after surgery found certain types of music vi- uh, viscerally aversive. So he actually felt sick to his stomach when he heard, you know, music. Uh, and that, that, went away pretty quickly. Uh, so they noticed that he did he did recover his ability to enjoy music as per previous before surgery um, quite well. But this uh, fear of spiders did not return. And I think part of that has to do with the way that we develop these intense fears. So, you know, we do have an innate fear of certain things. Most of us actually find spiders and snakes not very nice uh, from before we even understand that these are things that our culture deems as you know things that are fearful, right? So there's this idea that that kind of fear is innate and it's, it's in our DNA, etc. Um, but then there are other fears that we learn over time. Like if you've ever been attacked by a particular breed of dog, for example, you might develop a specific breed, you know, fear for that dog that you learn over time, etc. Um, so, you know, and and how we extinguish those kind of specific fears is by putting you back into the situation with the thing that you fear, right? It's called exposure therapy uh, and showing you that nothing bad is going to happen. So that allowing you to have your sort of sympathetic fight or flight response, um, but showing you that, that you're not going to actually die, even though you think you're going to die, right? There was actually a, uh, an article in The Guardian recently about uh, where the reporter had a fear of spiders and did this sort of immersion therapy, if you will, went to a science museum and actually got exposed to a, a lot of spiders that were way too big for me to think of putting in my hand uh, as as dealing with this issue uh, to overcome the the uh, the the fear. Yeah, so so part of me wonders if he hasn't kind of gone through this therapeutic uh, shift in his fear that has abolished this specific fear towards spiders in a way similar that a treatment would have, right? So now he's kind of learned, hey, actually, spiders aren't that bad. Now I can approach them. I no longer have this fear. And so why would that fear ever come back? Uh, So, you know, but but I still think that he has the capacity to develop fears of things that are fearful. So if he was attacked by a particular breed of dog, he would have a normal way, I think, of developing fear of that of that breeds of dog, although maybe somewhat diminished because he does have one less amygdala. The one thing that I really noticed from the paper is that it was very cautious in sort of its its claims. There there's a code word that you see a lot of times in in science papers that if they say it is possible, that is the code word for I don't know. And there is a lot of it is possible in the end of this study. And they're very honest about it. They, you know, This is a case of one person under undergoing a really specific operation for a really specific disease. He had this sort of inflammatory 
a disease that caused this inflammation in the brain, which in and of itself was sort of a rare condition. Uh, and so they're very cautious about it. Most of the headlines that we've seen about it have really run with it a little bit. Um, so I don't think there's any notion of uh, businesses springing up saying we can cure you of phobias with a lobectomy yeah. uh, coming anytime soon. Uh, but I do think it does open up this, uh, well, I'll ask, it, does it open up this possibility of investigation of how phobias are actually and their relationship to the amygdala? I mean, I think what, what it tells us is that you can have a specific phobia that's altered by the activity of the amygdala or inactivity of the amygdala, I should say. Um, and that's what's interesting about it is that you can still, you know, retain some fear, um, but eliminate others. And that's, that's, I think, the, the sort of real crux of the paper that's interesting. Um, but it's not necessarily a cure for PTSD, for example, or like any other kinds of fears that we have, we're not going to go out and chop amygdalas out of people's brains. Let's hope not. <laughs> so great. So that's our science in the news segment for this week. Let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Paul Bloom. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. And you probably know by now that the month of Movember is upon us. Harry's.com is the official razor partner of Movember, and they'll be there for you for the entire Harry month. Whether or not you grow your mow with Harry's, you can get an amazing shave and do good by supporting Movember's quest to fund research on important men's health issues. I'm sure you're wondering, how does Harry's.com deliver a superior shave? Well, Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century. By cutting out the middleman, they can offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands. In fact, their starter shave set starts at just 15 bucks, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream, or their new foaming shave gel, which I have to say does really foam up very uh, prolifically. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase if you type in our code Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. With the holidays almost here, I'm sure you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, it'll be packed, the lines will be super long. So use stamps.com instead. With stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. And everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then the mailman picks it up. You can even import all of the addresses from your Microsoft Outlook or QuickBooks right into the program and have it populate all the labels for you. That's a huge time saver. So right now, you can get a special offer when you use the promo code MINDS, a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MINDS to get the special offer. That's stamps.com. Enter M-I-N-D-S. I've heard that MailRoot, our next sponsor, handles email for ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery. And that's a pretty big deal. ACM is the largest organization dedicated to computer sciences in the world, and MailRoot is the one they trust to deliver their mail. So who's MailRoot? Well, they started in 1997 as an email filtering company called FrontBridge. Microsoft bought that and named it Forefront. So they get asked a lot, why didn't you just take the Microsoft money and go on a permanent vacation? Well, MailRoot's founder believed that he could still improve on the technology he'd built and help everyone from single users to large corporations. 
So how does MailRoot actually help with email management? We all know that spam, viruses, and bounced mail are a hassle to deal with. MailRoot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. With MailRoot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. MailRoot built their interface and tools with admins and developers in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. To remove spam from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net slash Minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Paul Bloom. Thank you for having me on. It's great to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you about your book, Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil, for a long time. So I'm really delighted that we finally had the chance to connect. Terrific. Yeah, no, I've uh, been thinking a lot about the book, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. Oh, good. So I wanted to start out first by asking you to let our listeners know why it's important for us to understand the moral life of babies. Well, everybody's interested in morality, uh, about why we behave in certain ways, why we believe some things are right and other things are wrong. And um, if you really want to understand morality and where it comes from, you could learn a lot by studying babies. So one particular question that everybody has is, to what extent is our moral sense hardwired and innate? And to what extent is it a product of culture and learning and schooling? And you know, there's all these different ways to investigate this. You can look at non-human animals. You can look at cross cultures. But I think by looking at babies before they've had contact with religious training or schools or television or even language, you could learn a lot about what aspects of our morality are just the foundations that we come, we, we come with at the very beginning. And do you think all babies are created equal? I think all babies are created equal in that all normal babies, all babies without brain damage, possess some basic foundational understanding of morality and some foundational moral impulses. They're equal in the same way that all babies come in with a visual system and the ability to move around and and the propensity to learn language. On the other hand, babies are not equal in the sense that um, a lot of traits connected to morality vary across humans. And so some babies are born being more empathetic than others or more aggressive or more contemplative. And some of these differences are heritable. Uh, so to some extent, babies come in a world different from one another. And anybody who's had more than one kid wouldn't be surprised by this. So how do you study morality in pre-verbal infants? Well, different labs do it different ways. But the way we do it here at Yale, and this is a lab that's actually run by my colleague and my wife, Karen Wynn, what we do is we show babies one-act plays. So we might show them a play in which a character is struggling to get up a hill Another character helps it, and then the third character pushes it down. Then we show the baby the good guy and the bad guy by adult judgments, the guy who helped and the guy who didn't, and we see which one they reach for. And we find that even six-month-olds overwhelmingly reach for the good guy in this scenario and other scenarios. With younger babies, like three-month-olds, we can see which one they, they, they orient to, which one they look at, and we find they look to the good guys. With toddlers, you can do something more sophisticated and see who they reward and punish. And we find that they reward the good guy and punish the bad guy. Oh, that's kind of, a, I mean, I'm so I'm amazed that even three-month-olds could understand the story and the implications. That's kind of shocking to me. Oh, we were, you know, when my colleagues wanted to do this with three-month-olds, I urged them not to. 
I said, look, the three-month-olds are going to fail just for boring reasons. It's too complicated for them. It involves too much control and so on. And they insisted, and as usual, they were right. So the three, three, and, and you could wonder, what about two-month-olds and one-month-olds? But a three-month-old is a meatloaf, a, a toaster, has very little behavioral control. And, and moving it younger uh, doesn't seem very promising. So um, the meatloaf, though, and I agree with you, it is, it is a little, I just had a baby not too long ago, and he was definitely a meatloaf for the first three months. Um, th- how do you, so they look more at the good guy, and that's how you can tell that they seem to understand the story and have a preference for the good guy? Right. So so we actually got into studying the three-month-old. When we noticed the six-month-olds, before they reach for the good guy, would look in the direction of the good guy. And then that then made us wonder, well, three-month-olds can't reach in a, in a controlled way, but they can look. So maybe they would look in a direction that the six-month-olds reached, and, um, and, and then that would suggest a preference. Now, if all we had was the three-month-old data, you'd be, I think you'd be rightfully skeptical. Looking towards one character versus another shows a distinction, but it doesn't show a preference necessarily, and it certainly doesn't show a moral preference. For that, you need the data from the older babies and also eventually from the toddlers. So what do those older babies do that makes you think that they can understand the difference between good and bad? So we did a whole bunch of studies on preferences, who they reach for. And, you know, we found as robust effect as preference for the individuals that adults would say are the good guys. But, but then you could wonder, is this moral? And it's a really hard question. There's no consensus, even for adults, what makes something moral or not moral. But one cue, for adults at least, is intuitions about reward and punishment. And so what we find is for toddlers that they like to reward the good guy and punish the bad guy. And that suggests that they're seeing them similar to adults, how adults do. We also find even for younger babies before their first birthday, they like characters who reward the good guy, and they like characters who punish the bad guy. So they seem to, their preferences seem to align with some sort of rudimentary sense of justice. Hmm. And so do you think that this is something that is adaptive in, in, in the sense that, you know, a baby sort of needs to know where, who, who is going to be more likely to give them good things and, and they need to avoid the people who are going to punish them or do bad things to them or steal from them or cheat on them? Is that where you think this is coming from? Or do you think this is a way uh, that the baby is learning to sort of navigate social interactions and just understand fundamentally what's going on? You know, it's a really good question because... We study this to look at what's innate and what babies start off with. But, you know, why do babies have this preference? They, they don't have much control over their lives. They aren't choosing social partners. They aren't, uh, you know, they aren't morally interacting with others. So why does it show up so early? Um, and there's two possibilities. One is that it's useful for the baby. And I think you put your finger on one way it could be. It could be when choosing social partners and particularly who to learn from. They pay attention to how these individuals react towards other individuals. A second possibility is that this capacity does no good for babies, but it's just wired to pop in early on. It's like, um, it's like sexual organs, which emerge early in development, even though they aren't used as sexual organs until much later. Right. And, and so 
Okay, so now we know that I think in your book you call them helper and hinderer. The babies prefer the helper, the good guy, um, etc. And you know, there's also sort of the opposite side of that. So if they prefer the helper, um, do you see any evidence that babies also understand punishment and will punish the hinderer uh, if given the opportunity, or will prefer you know a hinderer, a person that punishes the hinderer? Yes, exactly. We find both. In fact, I think the punishment effects tend to be stronger than the reward effects. Um, so we find that babies want to be good to the helper. They reach for the helper. They like other characters who are nice to the helper. But what's really powerful is they don't like to hinder. They avoid to hinder. Um, they don't like to look at the hinder. And when they see somebody hinder the hinder, be bad to the bad guy, mean to the mean guy, they like that character. And, and, and that last finding is kind of cool because it suggests that it's not some sort of dumb thing where babies just avoid, ba- avoid people who do bad things. Rather, if you're doing a bad thing to a bad guy, you're a good guy. And this is, this is kind of sophisticated, we think. Uh, uh, yeah, I would say so. And you also describe stories in which babies seem to have an innate desire to help out. So if you, um, putting words in your mouth here, but if they see an adult struggling, they, and they can do something to help that adult, that often they will be altruistic and go and, and help him out. Is that, is that an accurate characterization of what you're finding? It really is. So anecdotes of young babies find that babies respond to the suffering of others. They find a crying baby aversive. Um, as soon as they're able to move around, they'll try to soothe another baby who's crying. You know, and there's individual differences, but for the most part, babies do this. And then there's some nice experiments, uh, including some by uh, Felix Varnikin and Michael Tomasello, where you take a toddler and you put the toddler in a room and the adult is having some sort of struggle, like trying to lift something out of reach or trying to open a box, open a door with his hands full. And toddlers will spontaneously help. I think that our helping and our kindness are limited in significant ways. But I also think it's very hard to deny that some sort of positive impulse to do so exists from the get-go. And yet there's a lot of emphasis to teach sharing, you know, in, in daycares and in preschools and even in our, in, in, in sort of our culture, there's this emphasis on a child should be taught to share and that children are inherently selfish when they are born. Um, and, and this is something that needs to be taught. So, you know, babies can be jerks too, I think is a way of saying it. So, uh, what, what extent do you see sharing as an extension of this? Is sharing something that happens, uh, gradually through the course of education? or are kids born with a tendency to share? So two things. I mean, I I think you're right about the emphasis on teaching kids to share. And one thing is babies are kind of jerks. I mean, I think that there's an innate moral sense, but I think the moral sense is very limited. And in particular, babies are, are, have a very sharp distinction between us and them. So all of this compassion and this helping and this, it, it all pertains to the baby's own group individual babies are close to. Um, for strangers, not so much. And in these general, so, so studies that assess generosity and sharing, which are all typically done with strangers, find that we get more and more and more generous as we get older. The other thing is, I think we tend to be hard on babies and toddlers. So we tend to think when, our, when, a, ba- when a toddler doesn't hand over his toy to some other kid, we say, oh, you should share that. should be nice. But as adults, you know, suppose a strange adult walked in a room and I asked you to give me your car keys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd probably say, hey, you know, they're, they're my car keys. Why should I give this as a strange guy? But if, but if you were two years old and wouldn't give your most prized possession to some other little brat, we say, oh, there's something wrong with you. You have to learn to share. 
So I, I sort of, I, I sort of want to speak out for the toddlers in the room, you know, and say, yeah, you know, um, their behavior is the sort of behavior which we view as perfectly okay if we did it. Right. I mean, I totally agree. And I think that there's this interesting idea that, yeah, if your child doesn't immediately share their toy when asked to do so, it's somehow a reflection of you as a bad parent. Um, and yet, you know, we as adults don't do that. You know, it's, 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 it's the opposite. As, as if, if we do share, we are actually seen as good, generous, altruistic individuals, not that, you know, the absence of sharing ma- makes us bad. Right. And, and, you know, so the experiment I'd like to do is, you know, go into a, go into a park or a, or a waiting room in a dentist's office or something. And you say to people, you know, Hey, can you share your iPhone with that guy over there? And yeah. they look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. I don't know him. So, yeah. yeah. But it also seems uh, from some of the studies that you're describing that, that babies are egalitarian, that they're born socialists. Is that, is that true? There's a lot of research suggesting that when it comes to um, divvying up resources with, that strangers possess, they are socialists. Um, they, they like to share things equally. And the youngest babies and youngest kids are kind of oblivious to issues that adults would be sensitive to, like who deserves it more and who should get credit for something or worked harder for it. There's some very clever studies done um, where they give babies a bunch of resources to divvy up, like erasers. This is work by Christina Olson and Alex Shaw. So you give them five erasers and you have to give them to two people. And what babies do is they'll give, sorry, what children do is they'll give two to one and two to the other and they'll toss out the fifth one. They'd rather throw it away than have an inequality. So they're very egalitarian when it comes to other people. When it comes to themselves, they're not the slightest bit egalitarian. They, when, particularly when dealing with strangers, they want everything. And if you look at data on generosity, how much people will give if given 10 things and told you could give away as much as you want to another person, there's a line that just starts off at zero and goes gradually upwards. Most adults are far nicer than babies and two-year-olds. But there's also a lot of research showing that, uh, and here I'm thinking of Dan Ariely's work, that you know we are only generous insofar as we think someone is watching. <laughs> Right. That that often our altruism is such that we want to look as if we are being generous. But if we are not going to get caught, we tend to behave more selfishly. Is that true of babies as well or children? It is. So there's there's several studies um, looking at how babies and young children respond when someone's in a room with them. And they're just like people. They are they are much nicer and less likely to hog resources, less likely to steal when there's other people around. Most of this research is done with older kids, like four or five and six-year-olds, but there's some with younger kids. And from the get-go, we're sensitive to the presence or absence of audiences. So to some extent, morality from the very start isn't just sort of a pure desire to do good, but also desire to look good. So I have to say that there was one section in your book that nearly made me fall off my chair, um, and I will heartily admit that. It's about on page 100 when you describe Kohlberg and his levels of moral development, which I was very, very familiar with, uh, you know, having done a degree in psychology. Uh, and, you know, you talk about the fact that uh, the way that Kohlberg's moral development levels work is that, you know, young children first think about morality in terms of simple notions of self-interest, what's good, what's bring me ple- what brings me pleasure, etc. And then in terms of parental authority, authorities. So that's the next level. Um, what's good is what my parents say is good. And then as they mature, they become more and more sophisticated until ultimately morality is un- in understood in terms of abstract rules and principles. And then you say that he's wrong. 
<laughs> which is when I nearly fell off my chair. Of course, I stopped studying moral development after, you know, those first intro courses. So tell those of us who believe that Kohlberg's levels of moral development are essentially the Bible, um, where he goes wrong. So Kohlberg is very wrong in just about everything he says descriptively. And he's wrong in the same way Piaget was wrong, which is a tremendous underestimation of what children know and what children understand and, 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 and what motivates their action. You look at children at the ages where Kohlberg says they're sort of simple little mini behaviorists acting only for reward and punishment, and you find nothing of the sort. If you look closely enough, you find this exquisite sensitivity to abstract principles of right and wrong. And so I think Kohlberg, following Piaget, just really underestimates how sophisticated young kids are. I mean, in this regard, he was like Freud, who said kids start off as a pure id, a little psychopath, and only upon exposure to adults and, and society um, does he become a moral being. On the other hand, I think there's a deep sense in which Kohlberg was very right. And it, this is something which puts me in opposition to many of my colleagues in philosophy and psychology. But I think kids start off, we start off as emotional creatures, as as with instinctive reactions, very rich ones. But Kohlberg suggested that as we get older, we become more like moral philosophers. We become more able to use reason and deliberation to figure out what's right and wrong. And I think Kohlberg was right. I think, you know, to put it in philosophical terms, you know, a, a baby is David Hume and an adult is Immanuel Kant. A baby is an, a baby, a, a baby is an emotional, instinctive creature, very sophisticated, but you and I are not. We're not just that. Um, and that a lot of moral progress and moral understanding can only be appreciated from the standpoint of Kohlberg's idea that we just get very smart. So with that in mind, I want to go into some of the more, I would say, some of the more more difficult topics that you cover in your book, which is sort of this sense that even babies from the outset have a notion that there are us and them, as you mentioned earlier, there are others. And of course, I'm thinking about this as sort of the initial development of a sense of racism and inequality amongst people. So let's first talk about uh, the sort of family versus stranger bias that babies seem to be born with. And I have to say, when I read about, there's a study that you describe in your book where you can essentially train a baby to suck a pacifier uh, in a certain rhythm in order to hear his mother's voice. And that just made me melt <laughs> thinking about that my baby could actually learn to do that and that he would actually do that. You know, it's almost like a rat pushing a lever to get, uh, you know, stimulation of uh, their dopaminergic neurons, give them a reward. So here's a baby who's sucking on a pacifier and the reward is the mother's voice. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about this tendency for babies to prefer the familiar. Uh, is that something that is, comes out online very early on or does it happen around the same time that, you know, is, is there a particular time period of development that that starts to show up? It's, it's, I, I, I share your fondness for this research. It shows up as early as you can test the babies. Um, some of the first experiments, the ones you're describing, were done virtually with newborns. They were done in France, where I think they have no laws. And, and, and they, and they get babies, um, who are just born. And they basically have, they play them recordings of, I think it's, uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, they saw it on Mulberry Street, either spoken by the mother or by a, a female stranger. And they find that babies prefer, to listen to their mother. And if they're listening to two strangers, they prefer the stranger who speaks the language that the baby had heard in the womb. In this case, a French over Russian 
Well, if it's a Russian baby, the baby would prefer Russian over French. So early on, you get that. Early on, you find that white babies, uh, actually babies surrounded by white people, typically white babies, prefer to look at white faces over black faces, while babies who are black and who are surrounded by black people prefer to look at black faces than white faces. Babies who are brought up in multi-ethnic societies, um, Ethiopian babies in Israel, for instance, where they see people of many different colors, don't have any preference for faces. They don't have an in-group that's based on race. Um, but early on, well before the first year, probably before the first month, there's abundant evidence that we favor that which is familiar to us, that which is similar to us. And so do you think that is the origin of racial bias or is it something more complicated? I think the story of racial bias is kind of complicated because there are these studies showing that babies could tell the difference between races, prefer to look at their own race and other races, but it's not until later does racial bias show up. And so I think the story gets a little bit more complicated. The original bias that shows up most strongly in who babies prefer to look at, to play with, to share with, to learn from, to hand a toy to, isn't skin color, it's language. So there's this, these studies where you, you show babies two people, and one speaks, these are American babies, one speaks English and one speaks French, they strongly prefer the one who speaks English. Well, okay, what if you, that, maybe that makes sense, they could understand the one that speaks English. But what if one speaks English and the other one speaks English with just a slight French accent? Still, same effect. So you have a very strong language bias. The race bias is kind of a different story. It emerges very strongly in some five-year-olds and not other five-year-olds. And you could predict when it would emerge depending on the schools kids find themselves in. So if you're in a school where skin color makes a difference, where the white kids sit here and the black kids sit here, kids will pick up on it and they'll develop a preference for their own group. If you're in a school where nobody cares about race, race kids won't care about race either. Wow, that's really powerful. And, and you know, suggest some pretty simple societal changes that we could make that could eliminate racism in the, in the future generations. Or, or do you think that that's too simplistic to think about that? Well, so people ask, sometimes ask, what, um, what's this baby stuff good for in a practical ways? And I tend to be kind of cautious and say, I don't know if it's good for anything. I think it's very interesting, but I'm not sure it's going to make the world a better place. But one way it might have an influence on us is how we think about race and discrimination and bias and prejudice. There, there used to be a view, and maybe some people still hold this, where babies are innocent of bias. They're totally free and open and they love everybody equally. And to the extent you have a prejudiced and biased adult, it's, um, it's because of the, the evils of society. And I think the story is actually a bit more nuanced. Children actually very much divide the world in us versus them. They, they do this in language. They do this regarding family and friends versus everybody else. And then it's, it's culture that often directs them to tell them who to, how to make the cut between us versus them. Is it skin color? Is it clothing? Is it what they eat? Um, and also to the extent that kids grow up to be unbiased, this is an accomplishment of culture. You know, by our natures, we strongly value those around us over strangers. And to the extent that you and I don't, the extent that you and I might recognize that somebody suffering, I don't know, from the Ebola virus in Africa is a life just as valuable as those of our closest friends and family, that's an extraordinary cultural accomplishment. And it's something which simply is not in the genes. It's not what we're born with. 
You also in your book spend a lot of time talking about one particular emotion and its effect on our morality, and that is disgust. So can you tell us a little bit about why you would focus on disgust and what you've learned from studying disgust in, in children? Yeah, I'm very down on disgust. I think uh, uh, so disgust is an emotion which there's good evidence it evolved for a perfectly sort of healthy reason to ward us away from certain things like feces and rotten meat and vomit and blood. We find these disgusting, we stay away from them, and there are health benefits from doing so. But disgust has sort of drifted into the moral domain. So a lot of morality, moral judgments in adults are linked to disgust. You might say um, a lot of the objections to gay marriage and gay sex are because people find it disgusting. 30 years ago, um, if not sooner, actually, 30 years ago, people were complaining about, about interracial marriage because they found it disgusting. And every act of genocide that's left behind some sort of record has pointed to disgust as uh, uh, something which has provoked savage acts towards other people. When, you, when you're disgusted by somebody, you see them as less than human. And so I think disgust is just this awful example of something which is sort of biologically based and is the sort of thing that as rational people we should acknowledge shouldn't play a role in our moral decisions. So what, how, how do babies, you know, how does this relate to your work on babies? Like one thing that I've noticed, and, and this is again, just an anecdote, is that my, whenever I feed my baby a new solid food, his initial reaction is to sh- give me the disgust face, <laughs> even as he figures, you know, tastes it and then likes it. And then eventually it doesn't matter. That seems to be like his first response. And I don't know if this is something that is unique to my own baby <laughs> no, no. or if, the, <laughs> if this is something that cuts across all babies. So disgust is kind of strange from a developmental point of view because you get these precursors to disgust and you're describing one perfectly involving a reaction to new foods. But full-blown disgust doesn't seem to emerge until about four or five years of life. And nobody knows why it takes so long. I mean, it might be the brain areas that, that subserve disgust just take a while to grow. And at that point, you get full disgust which, for instance, doesn't just involve a reaction to certain things, but fear of contamination, where you don't want to go near it, near anything that that thing has, has touched. This is where cooties come in. Where, yeah, it's right. So cooties is a perfect example of the psychology of disgust. And, and cooties and the sort of culture of cooties and kids, you know, where there's girl cooties and boy cooties and everything, is an example of how disgust can be recruited to, you know, to denigrate some groups and to, to, to split up groups. And, you know, in a schoolyard, talk about cooties is actually pretty harmless. But it's the same kind of thing as when people talk about how disgusting the blacks are, or the Jews, or women. Mm-hmm. So is there something that we can do to mitigate against, uh, you know, this kind of cootieism that can, can develop in a child that can then lead to more nefarious behaviors, uh, you know, around racism and so forth? Like, especially because it, it, the reason that I'm asking this question is because it sounds as though it's tied to something very visceral, um, as opposed to cognitive. Or is that, is that not true? It, it is true. And I think there's sort of two kind of different answers. One answer is, although it's visceral, you can channel it. You can, you know, so people can choose to enhance their disgust towards a group, to to look at pictures that depict them as disgusting, to think of them doing disgusting things. Um, if every time you look at a gay person, you imagine them um, enacting a sex act that you find disgusting, you're going to find those gay people disgusting. Um, if you imagine, if you look at old people and you imagine them doing certain things, you'll find them disgusting. It's easy to enhance their disgust. 
And I think that there's sort of, um, this is what people do when they want to exploit disgust to get people to hate other people. Um, so we could, we could kind of condition ourselves in some way to feel less disgust towards other people by often by seeing them in their best lights. Um, the second answer is a bit different. It's to say, fine, we'll be disgusted at some things and not others, but we could intellectually acknowledge that um, this should have no moral weight. I mean, there are people I know, there are couples I know, which if I was to think of them having sex, I'd find it pretty disgusting. But, <laughs> but you know, but I don't say, well, then, therefore, you should not have sex because it would gross me. I, I recognize that's my problem. It's not theirs. There are food. Right. There are foods that some people eat that, you know, that haggis to, to be a contemporary, um, that, 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 that most rational people find really gross. But we don't want to outlaw them because we right. recognize that that's a horrible argument to say, because something's disgusting to me, no one should do it. And so I think in addition to the visceral stuff, there's sort of a, an intellectual thing saying, okay, I feel that way, but so what? And so the other side of this too, though, really, is when, when you're trying to teach a child or anyone really to not hate another person or another group, one of the strategies is to try to get them to empathize with that person, to try to put themselves into that, into that person's position and thereby sort of reduce that kind of conflict. And one of the really interesting things that I thought I, I read in your book was, was that you distinguish empathy from compassion. So can you talk a little bit about that distinction? I, I, I do. And, you know, I'm, I always, people always kind of raise their eyebrows when they say this, but I'm writing a book on empathy now and I'm against it. I'm arguing that, that empathy is a poor moral guide. And it's, it's like saying, you know, it's like saying you, you hate kittens or you're in favor of Ann Coulter. It's, it's just, it just sounds really weird. But, but I would make a distinction between empathy and compassion where empathy is putting yourself in someone's shoes and feeling their pain. And I think empathy can do good in the short term. But it tends to distort things. It's racist and parochial. It's a lot easier for me to put, to feel empathy for someone who looks like me and is adorable than someone who scares me and lives far away and doesn't look like me. Empathy is enumerate. It tends to focus us on the plight of individuals and not on groups. I mean, it's because of empathy that societies like ours care much more about a little girl stuck in a well than we do about global warming. Because I could emphasize with the girl and her family, global warming, some abstract thing. Yeah, it might kill billions of people, but show me one. You know, and, and, and if you can't, empathy has no moral pull. Compassion is valuing people. It's valuing human life. And in, in, in a distant sort of way. And I think in every possible way, compassion trumps empathy. Even at the local level. So, so it, it's not just contemporary doctors, but it's actually Buddhist, uh, Buddhist theologians have long pointed out that feeling empathy for suffering people will exhaust you and will burn you out and make you useless. While a more distanced compassion where they have value and you care about them and you want to be better, but you don't feel their pain is actually better to be a good person. So I'm a big champion of compassion. I'm very down on empathy. And so, but in the development of either compassion or empathy, you know, in some ways, the development of empathy has gotten a bad name in neuroscience recently because of its emphasis on mirror neurons and then the attack against the whole mirror neuron system that, you know, it's not, this, it's not what we think it is. Uh, it's been overblown, etc. And so do you have any insights into the development of either empathy or compassion that can kind of help us understand the, the sort of underlying neural underpinnings of either of those two systems? 
Yeah, so so there's a lot of developmental work on empathy, finding that there's empathetic responses very early on and imitative responses that suggest some sort of mirroring, though there's controversy about that. Um, and there's work on non-human primates and so on. Um, I'm kind of like, I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the backlash against mirror neurons because they've been so overblown and, and in so many ways. At the same time, I think there's something, there's, there's good evidence for a much weaker claim, which is that often feeling um, an empathetic response to someone's experience involves the same neural mechanisms as having the experience yourself. So to some extent, watching someone bang their fingers with a hammer is neurally overlapping with banging your own fingers with a hammer. And there's some degree of, of overlap. Um, I think that this is sort of sporadic and it's not very useful. And also, it's, it, it reflects to some extent biases. So you get a different effect, somebody like me who's white, watching somebody who's white bang his hand with a hammer than watching somebody who's black bang his hand with a hammer. I'm more likely to mirror somebody who looks like me. And this suggests that the mirroring isn't a primary thing, but the consequence of empathy. And in general, I think compassion, which is more sophisticated, doesn't involve mirroring in the same way, liberates you from the biases of the mirror system. So is that compassion? Is that what babies are born with? And is that, or, or how does that develop differently? I mean, you know, that, that was the whole argument that was so compelling about this mirroring idea and empathy is that, you know, babies imitate and that's how they learn what other people are thinking. Um, and if compassion is in some ways more moral or more important, do we know anything about how that develops? We know less about that. I mean, simple empathy and simple empathetic responses, emotional contagion. Is something that is, is something there's a lot of understanding of. Um, we study it in monkeys. We study it even in rats. Um, and we find it in babies. So, you know, if babies hear somebody cry, they're likely to cry. I think that's empathy. But the more sophisticated compassion, where not only do you mirror somebody's suffering, but their suffering matters to you, that you want to make it better, that you want to make it better even if you don't know what it's like to be them, because you care about them. That emerges later, and I think there's a more subtle, it's a more subtle story, both from a neurological standpoint and a developmental standpoint. I, I think empathy is innate. I think to some extent compassion is innate, but compassion shows so much more development over the lifespan. And so maybe compassion is one way in which we can overcome some of our uh, selfish baby or uh, our, our sort of low moral development babiness. Uh, I don't know how to quite say that. Uh, but, you know, to allow us to behave more rationally and more morally later on in life um, than we expect our babies to. I think that's right. I think if, if I had to say there's, there's, there's a couple of things to nurture as people and society should encourage us to nurture. One is reason and rationality. Like, you know, asking yourselves, so what's the effects of this? Is, is, is this fair? If, if our positions were reversed, would I be in favor of the same policy? And the second one is compassion. I mean, the Buddhists have it right, which is some attitude of what they call loving kindness towards others, not empathy, but valuing the fates of others is, is essential to, to morality. And then there's other things which we talk about less. Maybe they're, they're not as sexy, but things like self-control which I think play a huge role in our moral lives. The difference between a psychopath and a non-psychopath turns out to have very little to do with empathy. Empathy scales don't predict bad behavior very well at all. 
it has an enormous amount to do with self-control. You know, the, the, the scariest thing, the scariest person to have walking next to you is not somebody without empathy. You know, that person could have autism and have low empathy. People without empathy don't harm people as a rule. Um, there's no relationship actually to lack of empathy and aggression. The worst person to have next to you is somebody who has a lot of aggression and no self-control. Right, right. Well, I can't believe we just had an entire conversation about morality and never once have we invoked the God word. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's something I think that is already telling in, in terms of how we're understanding the origins of good and evil. Um, so thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Paul Bloom. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, that was a great interview, Indre. I was pretty surprised that he was so down on empathy, of all things, uh, which is something that, you know, at least talking about in my own personal life, being empathetic as just being an incredibly positive attribute. But those assertions near the end about uh, what he worries about walking down the street with somebody uh you know, that sense of control, like self-control as being the, the important value really flew in the face of what I imagined. Um, uh, and I was, I was really struck, uh, that putting yourself in somebody's shoes, it really didn't have that long-term impact that I thought it would. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that he actually differentiates em empathy from compassion. That, that to me is really compelling because for most of us, we consider the two synonyms and, you know, I, I think he's really onto something and that they don't have to be. And that's how you can explain some of the, you know, sociopathic behavior of people who still defy empathy tests, right? They show that they can put themselves into the shoes of another person, but they just don't care that that person feels the way they do. And so, you know, they behave in a sociopathic way. I've never thought about compassion in the way that he presented it as compassion for just sort of the overwhelming humankind. I've always thought about compassion in this sort of individual situation relationship. So I'm actually very interested to hear him talk more about compassion. And I guess that's the forthcoming book where he really is going to be harsh on empathy. Uh, but I, I thought that uh, when I've always thought about compassion, it's always been as a one-to-one -one re relationship, compassion with somebody going through um, a tough experience. But that distinction w was surprising and he backed it up with Buddhist teachings, uh, which I, I've wondered, is that actually referenced in a lot of literature uh, in terms of how uh, how we view compassion? I don't I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a newbie too to, to this. But um, but yeah, I think that that's certainly something that a lot of people are thinking about now. And I think that it's great that science is finally starting to weigh in on some of these questions. Whereas before we used to just take it for granted. It's like empathy. Everybody knows what empathy is. Everybody knows what compassion is. But you know, it's a little bit like attention or memory where the more we study it, the more we realize how we really don't know a lot about it. And so it's a really er an area that needs more study. He also struck kind of a, a, a very fine line in between philosophy and science. And I think it's a very dangerous line and an interesting line at the same time. Uh, because what he's really talking about is, is, is morality innate? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a philosophical question. Uh, and he really turned it towards science. I mean, as you said at the end, you spend an hour talking with him and the word religion never even came mm -hmm. up which I thought was a, a fascinating divide. But this this sort of interplay, I can imagine, opens up a lot of um, 
uh, interesting criticism from a certain side uh, that really believes in a in a less rational view of the of humankind. Yeah, no, and I and part of the reason that I wanted to do the interview now as opposed to when the book just came out is because we're coming into a season in which, you know, religion is going to play a big role in all of our lives, even if we're not religious, right? So, you know, we're coming into a time of year when people start these these debates, the war on Christmas is about to begin again, and so on, right? So um, we're going to hear a lot about this in the news. And so I wanted to have our listeners start out thinking about what science can add to the topic of morality. So yeah. And the final thing that I thought was um, was interesting is his book and the, his examples followed what I consider a Gladwellian flow to them. There's lots of counterintuitive examples uh, from literature of experiments that revealed these sort of surprising results. And uh, it was very compelling. And at the same time, as uh, I, I'd be very interested to take a more critical look and see if that's actually agreed upon within the larger field of uh, cognitive science in which he operates, and that he's not um, simply um, pulling out studies that are that are referencing some of the uh, the work that supports his conclusions at this time. Absolutely. I think that's something that our listeners need to decide for themselves, of course, and uh, definitely be skeptical and go and check out the original papers. <laughs> so that's our show for this week. I want to thank you, Kishore, for joining us as guest host. It was a pleasure to be here. This was a lot of fun. And of course, our listeners for listening to this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiring minds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiring show on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this episode was sponsored by harrys.com. Harrys.com is the official razor partner of Movember and will be there for you for the entire Harry month and, of course, the end of it. Whether or not you grow your mow with Harrys, you can get an amazing shave and do good by supporting Movember's quest to fund research on important men's health issues. Support Inquiring Minds and get $5 off your first purchase by going to harrys.com and using the coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. And by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. Use promo code MINDS for this special offer. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. And finally, this episode was also sponsored by MailRoot, the leading cloud service for email protection since 1997. MailRoot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. With MailRoot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.